You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello, hello. How y'all doing? What's going on? Uh, my name is Panama Jackson. I am the host of Dear Culture, which is a podcast on the Griot Black Podcast Network. And I'm very excited to be here today. I've never been to Grambling State before. I've never been to this part of Louisiana before. So I'm very excited to host this special live podcast recording of Dear Culture in conjunction with the Griot Daily, but we'll explain that to you in a second. I'll tell you real briefly about the Griot's Black Podcast Network. It's a podcast network full of all kinds of shows made for us, by us, for everybody in here. There's a show for all of us. My show is about pop culture, things that are going on. Just two days ago, I spoke with Van Lathan about Takeoff passing away. Um, but sometimes we talk about when Kendrick Lamar drops an album, we talk about whatever's going on in blackness and black culture. That's what we do at Dear Culture. When you get a little time, if you're bored, or you have nothing else to do. Go ahead and pull that up. Subscribe. However you get your podcast. We have video you all that good stuff. So make sure you check us out. We also do this. This what we're doing here today here at an HBCU in conjunction with HBCU Go, which is another one of our platforms, a part of the Allen Media Group, which is a conglomerate owned by Byron Allen, who just bought a hundred million dollar house in Malibu that was all over the news. So Buddy's doing really well in life. Shout outs to the big homie Byron Allen. Um, why are we here? So two reasons. One, we're here because I personally have an innate love for HBCUs. I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, uh, graduated a long time ago. I'm, some of y'all probably weren't even born when I, when I graduated. Um, but Morehouse and Spelman have a, a special place in my heart, but so does Howard. My wife went to Howard. Um, so does Southern. My best friend is, was from, from Scotlandville in Baton Rouge. So I come from, <laughs> I come from a family, my mother went to Albany State. So I come from a family full of HBCU grads and people who innately care about black culture, black people, like, when people say I do this for the culture, literally that's why we're doing this and that's why we're here. And that's one of the reasons why when we had the opportunity to come to come to Grambling State, we made sure to take it. So we did a show at Morehouse a couple weeks ago. Y'all might have saw Drake and 21 Savage were there um, for homecoming. I was not. I did not see any of that. I saw it on social media like everybody else. But the next day, I was on campus and we actually did a live show there uh, where I had the opportunity to bring some of my best friends in life on stage to talk about our career journeys and how, how we've been doing since we left and how we all managed to hold each other up and keep each other, hold each other accountable to make sure that nobody fails. So when we had an opportunity to come here, we talked to some of your student leaders about what they thought a good podcast episode would be. And pretty unanimously, everybody was like a discussion about graduating or career choices and options, the future, right? The, the journey being the destination as opposed to where you're going. So what we're gonna do today is do exactly that. We're gonna have, it's gonna be two parts. One, I'm gonna do the first part with one of my, uh, one of the co-hosts, my co-host here, Michael Harriet, who is the host of the Griot Daily Podcast. Um, and we're gonna talk about the very unique job titles we have and how we got here, because I'm pretty sure neither one of us thought we'd be standing here when we, we kind of started on our journey. But then we're going to bring up two students, or two former students, I'm sorry, two graduates, who have been where you are, who have started their own career journeys or are deep into their career journeys, but talk about what that's been like. So it could be more personal for you all that are here because they've sat in the seats that you're in. So for one, I want to say thank you to everybody for being here. Give yourselves a round of applause. Um, allow me to introduce the first panelist I'm going to bring up. He is a noted white peopleologist. 
He is a person who has a book coming out uh, at the top of next year, the top of next year, called Black AF History. He is somebody that you've seen on your television screen if you've watched any of the major networks from CNN to MSNBC. You haven't been on Fox, have you? Not yet. All right. Uh, that's just Kanye. But um, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the one, the only, one of the most famous black people in the history of Twitter, Mr. Michael Harriet. How's everybody doing today? So I, I referenced uh, Michael Harriet being a noted white pupilologist, and he's the host of the Griot Daily podcast, but my podcast is about culture and about what that culture looks like on all of us, but his podcast is a little bit different. So we're gonna run a quick clip right here to give you an idea of what he does, and then we're gonna talk about our jobs. When someone says white lives matter, they're not seriously suggesting that white lives should be important because there's never been a nanosecond in the history of this country that white lives weren't important. White lives were important when they founded this country. White lives were so important that they dragged black people over here to do white people's work. White lives were so important that they kept lynching us when we said, hey, man, like, you don't have to do that. They, white lives were so important that they demonized our right to vote, our right to participate in democracy, our right to live where we wanted to live and go to school where we wanted to go to school. There has never been a minute that white lives haven't been important or mattered. That was deep. Ah, yeah. Let's start there. Um, please, what is your, when I didn't read a specific bio for you, I didn't even ask you for one because I've known you long enough where I could feel like I could do it, but I feel like since we're talking like careers and stuff, what is your actual job title? Like if you had to give a quick bio, how, would, how do you give a bio to people about you and what you do? I always just say I'm a writer, like at my heart, regardless of all of the things that I do, I write words and, you know, people all say, uh, well, you mean for TV or like for a newspaper or is it for film? And I say, yeah, <laughs> right. Like I do all of those things. Ultimately, that's all of I, all I really do is write. But you call yourself a white peopleologist, yeah. which is a much more specific scientific category of job. What exactly does that mean? So I always had a perception, right? Like, so when we want to talk about racism or race in America, right, we always like talk about black history. We always talk about like our culture. But you can't understand racism by doing that, right? Like, black people didn't invent racism. Black people don't perpetuate it. To understand America's unique problem and perception of race, you got to study white people, right? So that's why I call myself a white peopleologist. Um, I always tell the story. So I was homeschooled until I was 12. And so and I was raised in a black neighborhood uh, in a historically black family. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, I was just around black people all my life. And when I was started being around white people, I had to be intentional about, you know, understanding them. So I didn't understand, like, if I talk to white people, like how I talk to black people, why they got scared or why they got like they thought I was angry or something like So you have to like uh, there are a lot of things in our lives and culture and our behavior that is kind of 
a way we defer to whiteness. And it's always been interesting to me that we talk about race in the construct of black people when we didn't even invent race. Like white people did all of that. So, you know, white people find it offensive, but really to understand this phenomenon that America has created, you really gotta understand white people. Thus, I'm a white peopleologist. That's an interesting job description, mm-hmm. so to speak. So for some context, I refer to myself as a professional black person. The first line of my bio and my resume, whether I send it to Harvard or whether I send it to FAMU, wherever, it's I'm a professional black person. And what that means is that I get paid to write about being black for a living. Like my literal job is doing that. So if I want to write it, if I want to have a, a write a thousand words about what you should put in your grits, I literally can do that. That's somewhere I got to over time. Like being a professional black person is a job description that I think I earned by literally indulging in nothing but celebrating blackness, right? Like I, all I do and all I write now, I'm a writer by trade, but it's, it allowed me a certain freedom to, to be me, which is what I want for everybody. I want everybody to, to have the opportunity to fully live in your blackness and be exactly who you want to be and not worry about what the outside world thinks about that. But I didn't start out that way. Like I worked on Capitol Hill as a budget analyst for Congress for 15 years. Now I was writing at the same time, but that's, I started blogging and that turned it into a career. Then I built a website called Very Smart Brothers and we were able to sell that. What is your career journey? Like, how did you start? Because you didn't start here. So I went to college and then I got a master's in macroeconomics and international business. But I was like planning kind of like what you did, but for private corporations, I was a project manager. And um, so I'd like talk to like it was kind of like being a journalist because I would talk to architects and I would talk to IT people. And at the end, I would have this big document. And if you were going to build like a factory in Malaysia, like you, I'd have I'd put all of that stuff together and you'd know the step by step process. Well, uh, this was back when Newsweek was owned by The Washington Post. And a guy asked me to write, and I was also teaching a class called Race as an Economic Construct. Um, And the guy asked me to write a story about why people were buying gold all of a sudden. Like you would see, this is back before you guys were born, you would see like the gold, they would have gold. We're going to have to stop with our old jokes. We keep calling ourselves old. I feel like we're going to, that's terrible. We're not not that old. We're actually pretty young people. so. So you would see gold commercials for like gold like you want to buy gold and a guy asked me to write a piece on it and the they loved it and then they kept asking me to write stuff and of course if you black in any kind of space you automatically become the expert on black stuff so police brutality you got to go to ferguson and then then that's how it eventually got here you know, it's funny because when I worked, uh, like I said, I worked on Capitol Hill. I had an office where um, I was the only black person in there for, I'd say, 10 years. But because I was the young, the young urban youth is what my boss used to call me. People used to come in my office and ask me if stuff was racist. Like people would knock on my door and be like, hey, can I ask you if, if this is racist? And I was like, of course it's racist because 
you wouldn't be asking if you did right. You know it's racist. That's why you asking. You just want me to tell you that, blah, blah, blah. But I forgot where I was going. I just wanted to tell the fact that, that I literally worked in a place where people used to call and ask me if things are racist all the time. I feel like that's important in your journey. Because you know what? If you go work at a place with a bunch of white people and that's no shot to white people or anything like that, you might be the person that people come and ask you questions like that. Yeah, like most of you guys are probably going to be like, this is probably the last time in your life you're going to really be surrounded by black people. Like, Unless you move to Atlanta or D.C. Right. But probably at your, well, I don't know, at your job you might be majority black. That's true. Like, but it's weird because I've worked at HBCUs. I've worked at, this is my second job as a, at a black publication. So, like, it's weird for me. I live in a town that's 80% black. I rarely run into or kind of interact in any meaningful way with white people, which is rare in this country. It's funny you say that because, so when I started working at, uh, I, I, I built up a website called Very Smart Brothers and we sold to The Root in 2017. Up until that point, I worked on Capitol Hill until I could become a writer full time. And I live in Southeast DC. Anybody here from DC? No, it's funny because usually when you're, you're from DC? Oh, that counts. So I'm from Southeast DC, which uh, is like being from the west side of Atlanta. Uh, it's just, it's like the blackest part of town. It's the, the notoriously the blackest part of town. When I stopped working at a place with white people, I literally never saw white people. Like it's crazy because I, I like my grocery store, all that stuff. Uh, and it changed, it actually, this is gonna sound bad, but I gotta, but I'm gonna say this. It changed the way that I interacted, right? Because when I when you work with individuals, you get to know people individually. You treat everybody as an individual. But when you don't, when you're literally around, like not around people anymore, except you're only around certain groups of people, you tend to turn people into tropes. And so everything is just like, like white people. This white. People. It was very. It was very interesting. I had to like de. I had to like deprogram myself. The whole point of us doing this is to kind of talk about the future and 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 what what is. Give me like two of the most important lessons you learned in life along your career journey. Right. So that's a good question. One Thank is you. if for whatever you want to do, like, like a lot of people want to be in media or writers or whatever. If you want people to listen to you, you have to build up a bank or a resume or wealth of knowledge that makes them want to listen to you. Right. So you like you can't become an opinion writer without having written about politics and sat on a bus and followed politicians around and interviewed politicians or sat in police stations. You can't write about police brutality unless you've uh, covered, a, you know, police and you've covered police budgets and interviewed people like so like everybody has an opinion. But what makes someone pay you to give your opinion is that it's backed by experience and information. And so the opinion isn't valuable. It is the thing that is that opinion is founded on that what makes it valuable. All right. So I have a piece of advice that I think has done me well over the past couple of years, especially. But it's something I learned early on. And I think this actually applies no matter what you get into, no matter what your job is going to be. Um, and I'll be actually curious when we bring up um, Ashley and Jamee what they what they think about this so far on your own journeys. I have learned to stop trying to predict my future. 
And I say that because if you asked me what I was going to be doing with my life when I got to Morehouse, I was going to be an engineer. Pretty quickly, I actually changed my major to economics, I think my sophomore year. I took one class on urban economics, and I fell in love with the idea of, of the, um, the common sense nature of economics, like one plus one always equals two, but how that impacts the way that people, anyway. I, at some, so at some point, I was like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get a PhD in economics. I did a summer program that was geared towards putting me into a PhD in economics, and I hated it. So I was like, all right, well, I don't want to do this anymore, but you know what? It's close to a public policy. So then I went and got a master's degree in public policy at the University of Maryland instead of doing the PhD that I had planned on getting, right? Um, and then it was time to get a job. I applied for a job at the White House. And I interviewed with this lady who was very nice, and she told me, I would give you a job, but you don't belong here. You care too much. I think you care way too much about the stuff you're talking to me about, and being here would ruin all of that. It would make you too cynical, which was really nice of her to see that, but I also needed a job. So I ended up getting a job at the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, which is the, 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 the Congress's budget. Well, I guess it's in the title. And I worked there for- yeah, the office where Congress has the budget, right? Yes, yeah. The little offshoot office. We're not on the main part of the Hill, but- and I worked there for 14, 14 years straight. I interned there for a year. Great job. I love the people I work with. But while I was doing that, I started picking up other jobs and other things that, that I liked. So for, at one point, I worked on a radio show. Then I managed a nightclub. I taught at the University of Maryland. I taught economics and statistics at the University of Maryland. I volunteered. I managed a nightclub. Um, I did some open mics. Like I tried anything and everything because... One, I didn't have any kids, so I didn't have anything holding me down. I have four kids now. They hold me down all the time. Um, that's a joke. They see this. I, I really do love you. But, you know, I started realizing. And then, but I started blogging. That's how I even got to being a writer. Right? I, a friend of mine was like, you should write. I had, no, I had no idea, no interest in it really, but I decided to give it a shot. And boom, it becomes a career, right? And then because I, because I started blogging, I meet my partner with very smart brothers. And then we build a website that nine years later, we sell to a major company. But during that time, I get to go, because of a blog I started, I got to go speak at Harvard and Howard. I got to go to places I never thought. I, I saw doors that I didn't even know existed. You met Oprah. I did meet Oprah. And Obama. And Obama. But yeah, but because of this blog, because of this thing that I started doing just because why not do it, I got to have all these wonderful experiences. I'm sitting here right now because of that, right? Like, the, I have an opportunity to be in front of all of you is amazing. The fact that- but it ain't Oprah, though. What are you talking about? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is better than Oprah. I love you, Oprah. I mean, I know I am, but I'm saying. But- so the main point is, like, I tried to, I just truncated all that. It was, at some point, I stopped trying to map out where I was supposed to go because I had no idea where I was going because these opportunities kept popping up for me when I was just doing the things that I thought that I was good at, right? Like, I was blogging and cool. It ended up working out. Like, next thing you know, people are hitting me up like, hey, we want to pay you to come speak in front of all these people. And it's like, wow, you want to pay me to come talk? Like, stand on the stage and come talk to people? Sign me up. Um, the craziest experience I had doing that, honestly, and what I'm going to say is going to sound crazy, but bear with me. I actually got asked to come speak to a very prominent university in, in California, one of them schools that's always in the top list, about um, 
I don't know how to say it, why white people are messed up. They actually called me. It was like, can you, we would like to pay you a boatload of money to come here and talk for, for 30 to 45 minutes and answer questions. A woman cried while asking me a question. She was like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, what are you apologizing for? Like, you're, but, you know, I had all these amazing experiences because I was willing to indulge and try all these things because I stopped trying to figure out, like, whatever life plan I thought that I had, I had to throw out the window because it became immediately useless, like, two years into me trying to to do my thing. Now, that's not to say if you are if you are living in your purpose and you know what you want to do, that's wonderful. Absolutely run with that. One of my best friends in life, when we got to Morehouse, he said, I want to be a biomedical engineer. And Buddy is a biomedical engineer today. He's running a lab at Georgia Tech. He run, actually runs labs in Kenya, Puerto Rico, South Africa. Like he's doing exactly what he wanted to do. He's amazing. Nobody else that's in my crew of friends is doing what we thought we were going to do when we got there. So let me ask you this. Do you think that's because so and I don't know this. Right. Do you want to do the thing you want to do because you want like it might get you a big house. Right. Like you can live good. You might make a lot of money. Or do you want to do the thing that you want to do because that's the thing you want to do. Right. Like because to me, it's crazy to be 18 years old and just pick a job out of the blue. Like, we don't even know what the job's going to be that, that'll that exist. Yeah, I didn't know why I wanted ago. to be an engineer. I think I heard somebody say being an engineer. Yeah. And I was like, all right, sound cool. I didn't know what it was. I, today, I'm still not completely sure what an engineer does. Yeah, like, like, engineers make decent money, but, like, I can't... Like, who wants to be a... Like, you might want to figure out things or build things. And attach engineer to that job to that idea, but like it's an interesting question because I think you should try everything that like do whatever like you have a plan right, but do what he said right. Try things because you never know you might find your true purpose because the thing you picked out right now, like it's it's crazy to plan your life around what people will pay you to do. You are never going to have more time in your life than you have right now. You know how much time I feel like I wasted in college doing absolutely nothing, just sitting there. And I think about that all the time. And then I, listen, enjoy yourself, please. Absolutely enjoy yourself. But this is the perfect time to genuinely think about what you want to do, but why? Like why it's what you want to do, but also understand that if you go head first into that thing, that there could be a point where you realize I don't like this. I cannot tell you how many homies I have who went to law school who decided they hated law in their first year. They're like, I don't want to be a lawyer no more. But now I got like $75,000 in loans for this first year. So now I got to go be a lawyer so I can pay off. I can just pay off being a lawyer. I can pay off my, my school, whatever. Like, the point is, do what you love. Please, absolutely do what you love. But also understand that what you love can change. What you love might change. What you like might change. Where you think you're going might change because you never know who's paying attention, which gets into this other thing that he mentioned Oprah. So I'm going to tell you briefly about this is one of those things that, that kind of helps crystallize all that. You never know who's paying attention to you. All right. You got to live your life like you never know who's paying attention. I'm going to tell you why. Randomly, y'all, anybody watch the show Queen Sugar? Okay. Love that show. One of my favorite shows, actually. One day, first season, something happens on the show that I was amazed by. I was like, you know, or it hit me because I, I have kids. 
and something happened in it with with, a, the, with Kofi Sirbo's character, Ralph Angel. I wrote an article about it. I was like, man, this joint hit me in the feels. I wrote an article about how it impacted me. Publish about an hour later, I get an unknown phone call. I'm black. I don't answer unknown phone calls. <laughs> Those could be creditors. It could be some. I, you just don't know. So I, I let it go to voicemail, right? But you know what happened? I checked my voicemail. You know who's on my voicemail? Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey read my article, and because she the feds, she found my phone number and called me and left me a minute and a half long voicemail telling me about how much she loved the article that I wrote, right? She, it made her cry, or at least she said it did. But it made her cry. Now, the funny thing, I'm so glad I didn't answer the phone because if I did, none of y'all will believe I actually talked to Oprah. But I have a voicemail that I could send to my family and we play every Thanksgiving before we pray. Um, but the point there is you really don't know who's paying attention to what you're doing, right? So you could be doing that thing that you're just good at, that you like doing, and the person that can change your life is over there watching you from a distance and they see, man, you did a good job at that. I want to change your life today. I want to go ahead and give you a job doing this because that's how so many things have happened to me in life, right? Like I'm just doing what I do and then I get a phone call from somebody like, hey, I have this project. I want you to be the host of this new podcast that we're doing and I want to pay you money to do it. Or I want you to be the host of this TV show that I've got going on. I want you to do it. I want you to come speak to all these people about your story. I want you to do it, right? So, you know, or you get to the point where you can take a platform that you built from the ground up and sell it to a company that could literally change your life and your career could become the thing that you love doing. That was just a hobby. Like all these content creators and things like that they're doing today. Like that's effectively what I did with a blog. I built up a blog and I was able to sell it and, you know, start paying cars off in cash. What's like the biggest win that you've had in your career journey so far? Okay. I, I think it, I can think of two. Uh, well, this is not necessarily career related, but on March 11th, 1998, I ran two Bostons in a row in a game of spades. True story. And, yeah. And I think. I Wait, everybody here can play spades, right? Jesus. How many of y'all just said no? None of y'all can play spades? I think that should. I feel like that should God, be. We, that, that, we, we got we to start a, doing this. A core curriculum course. I was uh, just going to say that there needs to be a <laughs> class. Everybody, it should be like a requisite. Your first your freshman year, everybody should learn how to play spades. Yeah. And or if, you if you're not. You should fail. Or, or <laughs> if your family's from the Caribbean or the West Coast, you could take the Domino's class instead. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could, you could take the uh, Domino's class. But you got one of the. You got it. And if you're really ambitious, you do both. Anyway, continue. Yeah, or you could just take AP uh, spades in high school, and then <laughs> I would have got a five on that. Yeah. I would have got a five yeah. on that. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think my other win, man, is really just again not just not like I probably haven't applied for a job in thirty years. I think that's a win. Like everything, win. I, every job I had since thirty years ago was somebody saying, do you want to work here? And so I think that's a win, like not, ha not having to, like I think working hard enough and well enough to have somebody recognize it and not have to ask somebody to hire you is, is a win. That is a big win. Um, I've had a similar trajectory, I think, because even when I got the job working on Capitol Hill, I think I got that job because I interned there. But I happened, this was right before 9-11 happened. And I was like the only person working on like unemployment insurance in the entire agency. 9-11 happens, the economy tanks, then boom. Everything that I'm working on just became really important. 
So you know what they had to do? Hire me. They're like, hey, you want to keep on working here and getting actually paid to do this thing that you were doing? And by the time, like, I sat down for a real job interview, they were asking me, how's, how's the family doing? You know, how, uh, yeah. how, how school was school good? You, you finished and everything? You, it, it was less an interview, more like, you know, if you want this job, it's yours. We have four. Pick one. Um, but, yeah, that's, that, that is a win. That is a win. Um, real quickly, I, because you can't always just talk about the wins. Have you had any big losses? Uh, well, I mean, I get probably an average of one email with the N word in it a week. So, I mean, but it doesn't bother me, but I guess, cause I, you know, I look at it as if you're making people mad, like if you're making people use the N word mad, then you are probably doing something right. And by but, people, um, you mean white people emailing yeah, yeah. you that you're yeah. an N word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, I think, I don't know. I can't think of. I, I hadn't solved racism yet. I think that's a big loss. Yeah. It's hard for me to think about losses specifically. Like, there have definitely been disappointments that I've had. We talked about one earlier. I, you know, I, all, my, for all of my homies uh, in the book world are working on books, and I had one interaction with a, with a, a literary agent that was very um, disappointing for me, and it probably set me back for you. I'm not the kind of person that's, that's not confident about the things that I'm doing, so I, it was weird for me to get rattled by that. But it also just made me put into perspective whether or not I want to be doing the thing that I was going there in the first place for. So I got to be vague about that one because you never know. Again, you never know who's paying attention. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues all from the black perspective. Ready for real talk and black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. So I want to introduce two people who graduated from here. Some of y'all know them. Some some of y'all know them, obviously, but that's that's why that's specifically why they're here. Because what I've learned in life is that I typically listen to people who know what I've been through, who've been where I've been, who who who've seen the same things that I've seen, and can appreciate the same cultural things that 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 I can. So we're gonna start first with Ashley Dabney, who is a true Georgia girl. <laughs> a native of Gainesville, Georgia, who holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Management and Business Marketing, served as a sophomore class president, residential life assistant, senior resident assistant, member of the President's Student Leadership Initiative, SGA Chief of Staff, member of the NAACP, she's an AKA, former chapter president, was the 67th Miss Grambling State University. Uh, okay. Listen, please put your hands together for Miss Ashley Dabney. Yeah. Glad to be back home. Yeah. Our next panelist is Ms. Jamae Griffith, who is a dance artist who enjoys contributing to the dance community as a dance educator, performer, choreographer, and costume designer. She's a 2016 graduate of Grambling State University, where she studied dance to perform with the Orchesis Dance Company. Can we get a shout out to all the dancers in the building? <laughs> There you go. Can y'all teach me a little something? Shout out, shout out. I can't dance. In 2022, she earned a Master of Fine Arts in Dance from the University of Oklahoma, where she performed with Contemporary Dance Oklahoma, taught various courses as a graduate assistant, and created multiple choreographic works. Please put your hands together for Ms. Jamae Griffith. Yeah. 
as I said at the top of this, we wanted you all to be here to talk about basically what it's like to be having been here and gone someplace. So I'm going to ask you some questions directly. Like, when you got here, what was your career goal? What were your career goals? Let's start with you, Jemay. My career goals. So when I got to Grambling, I came in specifically to dance in the Orchises Dance Company and trained under Diane Maroney Grigsby, who was the former director. And so my plans were to leave and be a professional dancer. And that's what you're doing now? No. <laughs> no. no. What are you doing now? I'm the director of the Orchises Dance Company. So I'm teaching, I'm choreographing. So it's full circle. It's kind of yeah. full circle, though. Yeah. So, so would you say professional dancer, like, when you came here, like, what kind of dance? Like, because, I mean... What I like, I I mean, you sound like I, a professional dancer to me. That's why. So I, when you said no, I was actually surprised because yeah, it sounded like dancer. you. You got to dance at work, right? Yeah, and then you get paid for it. What I so mean by you, that is, um, so I wanted to be a concert dancer. So I okay. wanted to be a part of a company um, and travel and perform. Gotcha. No, because I I just, I just knew Soul Train when I was like yeah. eighteen. <laughs> Yeah, I did, I did a little bit of it when I left Grambling, but um, it didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to be, and so I had to pivot. And, yeah. I'll be honest with y'all for a second. You know one of my actual life goals was, and it's one of those things I had to change? I wanted to be a backup dancer for Usher. Have y'all seen the You Don't Have to Call video? Not a video? Okay. Yeah. I wanted to be in that video so bad. I, and I'm I'm not even joking. I, this is actually very true. I legitimately mean this. Um. Ashley, what about you? When you got to Grambling, what, what did you want to do? So when I came in 2017, I had plans to be a corporate attorney. I was always a business major, so luckily that didn't change. But I wanted to be a corporate attorney, and now I just work in finance. Okay, so for both of you, what changed? Like what, and if you're on the way, if you're on that path right now, awesome. But you're not there, you the corporate attorney things, that's something you still want to do? No. <laughs> okay, so why? Why not? Um, so really what changed for me, we're honest, I'm at home, um, COVID. Like, I had to get a job. I didn't have time to study for the LSAT. I was a campus queen. I had went through, like, a major tragedy during my reign. So I didn't have time to study for the LSAT, but I was like, I got two degrees. Um, I need to go get on somebody's payroll. So that's what I did. Yeah, getting paid is very important. I, I can agree completely. What changed for you? Because I'm only saying it because I was actually surprised. Like I said, I was surprised that you said no. But since you had it, you said you had an opportunity to do some of that since you graduated. But why aren't you a professional dancer at this point? A series of things. Um, when I left here, I moved to New York and um, I, I trained and I did all the auditions and I, I did dance professionally a little bit with small project based companies, um, but I kind of fell out of love with it because I feel like it wasn't, um, I guess it didn't go the way that I thought that it should have gone. And so um, I kind of quit for a second and I kind of quit for a second and um, I was actually mad at like, I was mad at God because I was like, you know, I prayed for this. This is something that I wanted to do for a very long time. And I got here and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I was a little depressed. Well, what, what, what about it yeah. wasn't what you thought it was going to be? I guess I, I wasn't, I wanted it right then and there. Okay. And so it wasn't, I wasn't getting there fast enough. When, let me ask you this. So when you're 
doing stuff like that and like you're kind of living your dream mm-hmm. but when it when that dream becomes like work mm-hmm. like something you got to grind yeah. like if you're a dancer like you're on stage and 99% of the job is this not on stage part right mm-hmm. was that it or was it just like um, you just fell out of love with the art as a whole I think that was part of it. Um, living in New York and being an artist, for the most part, you're going to struggle. You know, you're going to have to have multiple jobs. And so I think I was there to dance, but I was working a lot. So I didn't really get the opportunity to actually dance and to do what I thought that I was going to do. But then also, I think part of it was um, it just wasn't happening fast enough. I thought that it was going to happen a certain way. And um yeah, but I learned a lot from it. Yeah, it's crazy to hear you say that because, like, y'all, both of you are so young. To me, like, like to me, if you either like, if you want to be a corporate attorney, it's like to me, most people who go to law school, I don't know if y'all know this, don't go like right after they graduate from college because law school costs a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, do you still plan on? It's not the same story. And I, that is fascinating, the fallout of love thing. I've been there. Do you still plan on doing the corporate law thing at all? Or have you have you seen something else that you're like, oh, I want to do that now? Um, I don't have an answer for that. I just celebrated a year at the Toyota. I love what I do. I love that I learn every day and I'm challenged. So I don't know. That isn't my full passion anymore is law, of course, is like she mentioned. Um, It's not my passion. It's not what I love. My passion and my love is helping other black people, helping students, helping first generation. And doing that at Toyota, I learned a lot to be able to give back in these spaces. So I don't know. So you kind of dove right into one of the questions I was going to have about like when you when you when you discover the thing that you think you want to do isn't it so for both of you all like you mentioned like your pivot seems like it was a little bit difficult they say you were mad at god like that's that's real deep like when you get to that point with something i feel like that's really deep um how long did it take to get back out of that like out of that part of it because you're now you're you're back here teaching Mm -hmm. right so you must what part did you fall out of love with and what what brought you back to teaching dance you know i think i was looking at it in a, so I was finding my self-worth as a dancer um, from my success as a dancer. So if I didn't get casted in whatever I auditioned for, then I felt like I was a failure. And so I think that I had to step away from it um, to realize that that's not where I find my worth. Um, and so unintentionally, I was still... I said I quit, but I was un- I was still working in the dance realm. So I was teaching. That's where I started teaching. And then that's also where I started to, um, I guess, learn more about war- wardrobe and costume design and things like that. Um, and so what was the question? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you asked Like how long, how was that recovery that, that brought you back to even 
Like, I, I'm assuming you kind of fell back in love with it mm-hmm. to some degree. So Yeah, so I, find, I got an opportunity to go to grad school um, at the University of Oklahoma and also be a graduate assistant. So I was teaching, again, and choreographing. But it's a performance-based program, and so I, I was a part of the company there. And so I had to dance. And so I kind of fell back in love with performing. And then I also um, started doing, like, uh, freelance work. So I do still perform, but it's not in the way that I thought that it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And for you, Ashley. <laughs> so you graduated in 2021? 20, 21. All right. So you mad early in the career <laughs> game, right? You yes. super duper early, but you've already, decided, you thought you were going to do corporate law, but that's not what you're doing right. You're not there yet, but you mm-hmm. like, like Michael said, I actually agree. You have a long way to go. <laughs> have you seen things at Toyota that, um, are pushing you in a different direction. You're like, you know what? I really like this aspect of business. Maybe not the, maybe forget the company, but I like this aspect of business. And it's something that I could see myself doing or digging further in or maybe doing something like this, but at a different place because they match more my values. Not to say that Toyota doesn't, but like they are kind of like exactly what I want to do. Or like I used to want to, well, I can't actually say it's a media company, but I used to want to work at a specific media company because I was like, yo, this is, if I'm going to go be black, I'm going to go do it here. And then over time, I got these other opportunities to try so many things in different places. I was like, you know what? I can be me wherever I want to go, wherever I go. I've just had the good fortune of being at a place at like the Grio now where I get to, you know, be as black as I want to be at all times to continue along my path to professional black person. Um, yes, of course, they always say, if you want to see God laugh, hear God laugh, then just tell him your plan. So (laughs) that's what I did. And when I got to Toyota, it was like a land of possibilities. It still is a land of possibilities. There's so many businesses within Toyota and Toyota has so many growing businesses. It's the possibilities are endless of what I can do and what I'm doing. And so I actually started out in a program that exposed me to almost everything and anything as far as the automotive. And I didn't even know that Toyota advocates on the governmental aspect. And you're like, well, why wouldn't you know that? I mean, a lot of people probably didn't know that. So I think that I also have some aspects of what I wanted to do in law, but it's on a whole different level. And I think that it really has, at this point, broken me down to a point where I've unlocked new pieces of my own mind to say, like, wow. This is actually pretty cool. I'm actually kind of good at this. I can calculate these things. I'm a good accountant. So those little things that help me along the way. So if I hear you properly, you're saying things you didn't even know existed have become clear to you now. Like you've learned things and seen things you didn't know were there before. And it gives you a new perspective on where you can go and what you can do. Right. So our motto at Toyota is dream, do, and grow. And that's what I feel like I do every day is dream the new dream. I do it. And then I grow to go on to the next. You got me wanting to get a job at Toyota. (laughs) We are hiring. (laughs) The views expressed by the panelists on the stage are do not represent those of all of us. Boy, out here talking about getting a new job at your job. Um, So black. So black. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the black perspective. Ready for real talk and black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. So 
let's talk about your time here and how it helped prepare you for where you've gone, got to, and all this other stuff. So what are one of the what are some of the biggest lessons that you took away from being here at Grambling that is, have helped you in your professional journey so far? Start with you, Ashley. Um, so the first thing I jokingly said it last week when I was on campus to a couple of staff members is etiquette dinners. Um, Gremlin always hosted etiquette dinners for every organization I was in. And I was kind of like drawn out at that point by senior year of like, really junior year, like, oh my gosh, I cannot do another etiquette dinner. I'm never going to use this. What am I even going to this for? And because of my job now, I go out with a lot of our dealer principals that represent to sell our cars. And you will be amazed. A lot of people don't know how to eat properly. So I think Gremlin, because my experiences in different organizations expose me to something simple as an etiquette dinner that I use in my career. And it helps me to have conversations because I'm respected at the table. We talk about having a seat there at the table, but you need to be respected in order to be heard, in order to be presented with new opportunities. So Gremlin really helped me with that. Interesting. That's, 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 that's dope. That's dope. Okay. Um, for me, um, my dance instructor, Diane Roney Grigsby, she would always say, she would tell the company, look, see, and do, and be nosy. And so I, that's something that I took um, when I left Grambling into my life, um, just paying attention to people in I guess who've gone before me, but also paying attention to like my people above me, um, where I want to go, and taking from them. Yeah. If I may, one lesson that I learned, and I'm gonna attribute this to HBCUs. Um, shout outs to HBCUs. Y'all don't probably when I when I was at when I was at Morehouse, we had to register like in line. We had to actually stand in line. Um, to go into a building and like somebody had to punch my classes in. By the time I graduated, we were doing it on the internet, but the internet would always break down. We actually used to register by phone, and if somebody called you while you were registering, you would lose your classes. It's very tragic. Very tragic. Anyway, one thing I learned is keep every important piece of paper that you ever get from your institution. I do not know what it's like here, Graham, but I do know what it was like at Morehouse College. That college that we love to exalt down there and up there in Atlanta, Georgia. And then people took my scholarship every single year that I was on campus. And my grades were fine. But I got a paper every single year saying my scholarship had been revoked because of my grades. And then I would go to the, to the little administration building, Gloucester Hall, and I would show them my paper like I'm on scholarship. I would show them my grades. And they're like, oh, cool. They hit a button and everything will be fine. But you know how annoying it is to lose your scholarship for no reason because somebody ain't paying attention for three years in a row? The main bullet point here is keep all the important pieces of paper. You never know when you're going to need it. I still have a paper with all my graduation signatures. Just in case. <laughs> just in case these Negroes try to tell me <laughs> that I did not graduate with honors in 2001. So just keep, yeah, 2001, yeah, long time ago. <laughs> See, I heard that. I heard that. It didn't hurt my feelings, but I did hear it. Anyway, just keep the important pieces of paper. The early 2000s. <laughs> it sounds crazy because it doesn't sound like that's long, that long yeah, ago, but it really was me, like 21 years ago. Um, damn, that's crazy. All right, Jimmy, let's start here. Is there anything you wish you'd known when you were here at school that you had to learn in the real world? So all my answers are going to be geared towards the answer. That's fine. 
Okay, so I think for me, something that I wish that I have I knew before I went out into the real world as a dancer is just um, professional development. Hmm. Um, knowing what to look for or what to bring with me to an audition. Like, um, I need an eight by 10 headshot and body shot. Uh, what I should wear. Um, what my res resume should have on it, things like that. So okay. I wish that I would have known. Ashley? For me is, even though you graduate, you'll always continue learning. So don't ever close your mind to something or think that you know it all because you probably start over all over again. So you'll always continue learning. So, so one thing I'd like to point out is, and it is, it's prevalent in both of your answers, is the importance of knowing that like doing the requirements is never going to be enough right like like it might get you a b and get you to graduate but when you out in the world right like the only requirement is you got to you you're competing against everyone else in that universe and so i think that's an important lesson to learn like you some of that stuff you're going to have to learn on your own and you're going to have to develop yourself on your own as a person without a syllabus, without a book, without an instructor. All of it now is taking what you learned, not just the information that you learned, but the way you learned it, the way you study and applying that to everything in the world from now on. I think, um, actually, that's kind of interesting that you say that because when I first started at Toyota, I came into a college graduate program. It was 12 of us who started the program. And so at that point, all of us were on the same level. We're in different playing fields as far as our regions. But once the program was over, when it came to the promotion aspect, it was, well, what difference are you from when you started to where you are now? So I had to not only pull from everything that I've learned from Grambling with my degrees and my time being here, but also everything that I learned in Toyota in that year from the program to say, okay, this is the employee I want to be, but also not only what I learned on the job, but at home because I've had to go home and deal with myself. So this person that I'm bringing to you at this one year mark has some different things and has a different perspective. So that is definitely true. I want to add some knowledge that I have now, many years out of the game of college. <sighs> this is going to be very somber, so just, just understand it. I mean this with, with the most genuine of hearts. What I wish I had realized is just how special it is to be at an HBCU while you're there. Like, I feel like I took my time for granted. Because we, we, we mentioned earlier, Michael and I mentioned earlier, talking about, like, once you leave here, you go into the real world and you go into get jobs, you go into grad school or whatever it is. And there's a, there's a very good chance the room will never look like the rooms now that, that you're in. Right. Like it's never going to be the same place. And that's not the case for everybody. Right. But for for a lot of us, I went to grad school, at the University of Maryland. True story. The lady that brought me up there ended up getting fired because she brought in like 10 HBCU grads at one time. It's like three of us from Morehouse, four from Clark, a couple people from like Fisk. Like we blacked out that 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 department like almost immediately and then boom, she was gone. Um, but like you're in a very special place where you get to just go to school. Like if you broke, you just broke. You're not black and broke. You know what I'm saying? If you if you pissed, you just pissed. You're not black and pissed. 
right? You get to be just you. You get to be your full self. But in a space where everybody's not looking at you and the color of who you are and making judgments about it, right? Like, if anything, you're probably in the space that you're going to have more people encouraging you now than you're ever going to be in. Like, when I was at Morehouse, you couldn't tell. There was not, there was no professor I had that ever thought that I couldn't be anything I wanted to be, right? Everybody was of the belief that I could go and do anything I wanted to do. I don't know that I experienced that when I left. When I got to grad school, I actually had professors who, I don't think they doubted me, but I don't think they cared as much about me as I did or that I thought that I was as special as I felt when I was at Morehouse. So with years of knowledge out of this, just keep this in mind. Enjoy this time that you have here because it's never going to look like this again. As I've been in the real world for a long time and it never has. Now, my world is very black now. It's very black. I've said that, I said that earlier. But it's different, right? Like when you're in college, you're, with a, you're, in a, you're in a space with a bunch of like-minded folks who all have goals, who all want to go places, who all want to be somebody or, I don't know, change the world. Like it, it, the, the possibilities seem endless. Possibilities don't feel as endless when you get in the real world and people start telling you what you can and can't do. You know what I mean? And the, if you're lucky, you never get held down by that kind of stuff. You never get limited by it. But there's always people around you making you feel like whatever, wherever you're trying to go, maybe it's not as, as easy a place to get to as you thought when you were here. So just somber, but real. Just enjoy the time that you have here because it's never going to be like this again. Um, yes, that was very sad. <laughs> but I don't like being sad. So um, I'm happy. Like, you're in the best time of your life right now. Like, y'all don't know how lucky y'all are. Like... I was very sad when I graduated, maybe like a week after. Like, graduation was great, but I genuinely, I remember thinking, I was like, yo, it really didn't get any better. Like, not like it's that, not going to get not any better. Not that it necessarily got worse. It just, like, it was so, I had so much fun in college. I did so much nonsense, so many shenanigans, so much foolishness and fooly wang. But I also graduated with honors, right? Like, I was, all of my boys, we made sure that nobody wasn't going to, wasn't going to not graduate. We all graduated. Everybody got out. We all have, everybody in my crew has PhDs and law degrees and master's degrees. Everybody's doing well. That's because we all had each other's, because we believed in each other, right? Like you're in a space where presumably everybody believes in, in, in everybody. And you might not like everybody you around, but that's just the, the nature of being around a bunch of people. But at least you're in a space where everybody believes that the people who are around you possibly could do something, right? Could be somebody. And that's a very powerful, powerful thing that I, I think we can take for granted at times, especially if, so I was like the first, my, I mentioned earlier that my mom went to Albany State. My dad graduated from Alabama A&M while I was in college. But my mom never really talked about college. I don't know if she didn't enjoy it or whatever, but like I didn't have anybody really telling me about what college was like. So I had no idea what to expect. I learned a lot of stuff on the fly. But now that I've been through it, like my kids ain't never going to struggle with that. I'm going to impart into them very heavily that, listen, when you get to this space, because my kids are all going to HBCUs, whether they like it or not, like you better enjoy this time here because this is going to be the best. It's going to be the most encouraging space you're ever going to be in with people like yourself. And I think that's the one thing that I wish I had known before I got there, because I probably would have taken a little bit more advantage of that. Um, maybe. Maybe, but I, I like to think that I would have. 
Introducing Deer Culture with Panama Jackson on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Bring your friends for the shenanigans and stay for the edutainment as Panama debates culture wars, Janet Jackson versus Michael, Black Fashions, Black Mendations, and everything black. Listen today on the Griot mobile app for all the black culture conversations you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard. Last question before we get into some fun stuff, some 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 brief fun things. What what's one piece of advice that you don't think that you don't think everybody in this room is gonna get that you think they need to have before going off into the real world? See, I put that caveat in there that you don't think they're gonna get because see, it's different. Like everybody can tell you, you know, be yourself, be happy, and stuff like that. But there, what's something unique that you think everybody needs to know? From maybe from your own personal journey that could help them out as they go forward in, in their endeavors. It's okay to be yourself, but it's okay to be redefined by other things. Not just what you see on social media, but things that you put into your minds, your taste of music, your taste of friends, your taste of family members, it's okay to be redefined. That does not stop you, that does not limit you, you limit yourself. Okay. I like it. Mine is geared towards the dancers again. Um, I would tell my dancers that um, a lot of times, like, so in the dance world, there's a hierarchy of dance, right? So ballet's up here, and then you have modern, you have jazz, you have contemporary, and then anything that is usually created by black and brown dancers, it's for fun and it's way down here. It's not seen as something that you study. So I would tell my dancers that um, what we do at HBCUs is very specific to HBCUs or the HBCU culture, HBCU dance culture, um, but be proud of it. Be proud of it and take it out into the world and know that um, it is also dance. All right. You got anything? Uh, well, I would... Uh actually like combine what they both said and say again like whether it's dance or uh like the perception of yourself again don't like be confident in the stuff that you learn here and the stuff that you encapsulate as a black person even if the world does not value it does not mean it is not valuable because everything that they hold valuable, and I'm, excuse my language, but it's just some that people made up, right? Like ballet is just some stuff that white people in Europe made up, just like dancing at, uh, you know, or, or playing in a band or being on a drum line. It is all music and the value of that you cannot, you cannot look to other people to place value on the things that you hold valuable, right? So all of it is just something that somebody made up and your thing could be 100 years from now or 10 years from now or two years from now, a valuable thing. You cannot let someone else determine that value. I like it. 
briefly, I'll just say, take the confidence you get from being in places like this and be ready for any opportunity that presents itself. Like, don't lose out on a great opportunity because you don't feel like you're ready for it. Like, prepare for it. Think that there are things that are going to come your way that you, you don't even know exist yet. But when it does show up, you're ready to take, an op- take that opportunity and run with it because you never know where it could take you. You never know why you got it up front. But who knows? It could change the course of your life. It could change the direction you're going in. Um, almost everybody I know who is super successful did not start out the way the way they ended up. And most of that is from just taking advantage of opportunities that came their way that they didn't know were coming. Let me add this. Do scary, uncomfortable things, right? Like, because the worst that could happen is you'll be right back where you were when you didn't do the scary, uncomfortable thing. Like, try stuff. And because a lot of times that'll catapult you somewhere that you never thought you could have been or someplace that would have taken you years to get. I honestly think that you'll never fully be prepared for any opportunity. So if you're waiting for that prepared moment, you're going to miss out on a lot of things that you could have really excelled in and learned a lot from because everything is, like I mentioned, a learning opportunity. Fair enough. We always end my podcast with a black fashion, which is a confession about your blackness. We all like to say blackness is not a monolith. Well, sometimes we like to prove it i like to find out. I've had some pretty disturbing black fashions on my podcast. People have admitted things that I don't think they should have. I feel like they should have just gone easier. Like, say, a movie you haven't seen that you should have. Say you can't play spades. We've had some pretty disturbing things. But um, I'm not going to make Michael do this since he's done several black fashions. And we got, you've been on, you've been on our show several times so we've done this. But I'm going to ask you both for a black fashion. A confession of something about who you are, about your blackness that people might be surprised to learn about you. I'll go. You got, you ready? I got a lot of them. Okay, (laughs) let's go, let's go. (laughs) I've I've never seen um, any of the Friday movies. (gasps) Oh. (laughs) You know, I I want to be surprised by that, but I... That happens so often. People be like, yo, I ain't seen The Color Purple. I ain't seen Friday. I ain't seen... Has everybody here seen The Color Purple? All right. I feel like that also should, there should be a, speaking of classes, along with spades, there should be like required, like when you fill out your application for college, you need to be able to fill out the movies. You got to check off certain movies. If you haven't seen it, you got to be required. That's a prerequisite. Before you get here, you need to watch yeah. Love Jones before you get here or you can't come. So, so the Grio asked you that, I don't know if they did it to you. They asked me to give a quote from the color purple in my interview. Did they, do, they didn't do that to you? Here at the grill? Yeah. No, because they know I've seen it. I was singing the color purple when I, I was sick before, before the camera came on for the Zoom, I was singing, sister. Oh. So I was already singing, yeah, so they okay. knew I was yeah, good I money. See. You know what That's I'm saying? Good, good. All right, all right. So, you, so yeah, what do you have with Ashley? I don't know. It's not that tough, but I mean, you were talking about it earlier. I can't play spades, and now that I live on the West Coast, I surely can't play dominoes. So I think that's the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do when you go around other black people? Well, in Arizona, it's not a lot of us. So, like, when it's like four five, we just try to go get something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, Thank you for sharing your black fashions. What we're going to do now is open the floor to Q&A. Um, hi, my name is Havlin Williams. I'm from Chicago. And my question is, um, you kept mentioning that going to HBCU, like you're always surrounded by 
African-Americans or black people. And when you go out into the real world, that it'll never be the same. So with me, I'm a little bit nervous about that. So did that like trigger your fight or flight or like, did that like make you, did that put the pressure on you? Like being surrounded or being in a room full of Caucasians that it's like, okay, I need to impress them or I have to put my best foot forward. Um, I would say it was very challenging. I have to keep it as honest as I can. When I first got to Grambling, I think it was like a culture shock being around this many black people that look like me, but we're very different. That's the first thing. A lot of people don't realize that black people, we're not all the same. We're like our own within our own. Um, so when I got here, it was like, oh my God, this is like the milk of land and honey. I love it here. And when I got into the real world, not only was I adjusting to being the black woman in the black space and having to define myself, but on top of that, others were dealing with other things as far as coming out of COVID and now they're going from working virtual. So we're in the office three days a week. So now I need to learn how to not only interact with black people, but white people as well, Hispanics as well. So it was very hard. For the first year, I probably went home crying every single day, saying how much I hate it. And it wasn't because of the job. It was because I was no longer the black person with other black sisters and brothers that I could go confide in a room with. It was only me. And it was only me because I'm working this job that a lot of my family members don't understand. I'm a first generation. And so now I'm having to not only build myself up, but build the career that I want. And so everybody talks about getting to the success, but they don't talk about the actual journey, the actual process. So I'm still filtering, but now I go in the office every day, looking my best with my heels on. It's not a day I go in the office with flats on. I'm walking in there with heels because when I look good, I feel good. And I also my personality, they may say something to me that rubs me the wrong way, but you won't see it on my face. And I have to learn how to react to situations because you'll always be labeled that you're black, but I'm gonna let you know that I'm a proud black graduate and a proud black woman as well. Hello, my name is Shakila Allen. I'm from Forest City, Arkansas. So my question is really to Miss Ashley. Okay, so um, I know, call me Ashley. Okay, <laughs> so you was a student leader. Um, you was president, and I'm freshman class. I'm freshman class president. Let's get this. Okay. Hey. So my um, question, well, statement would be like, would you have any advice for me, like? being a first gen as well, being president, just like stepping into like this college world with like no help. Would you have any advice? Like how to stay strong or like how to just keep my head up at all times? Well, first I think that they owe you another round of applause because you're a freshman class president. Hello. <laughs> so I actually, when I was here as well, at sophomore year, I ran freshman year. Um, got disqualified, but God's plan, because I feel, I told somebody the other day that I felt like if I would have got it then, I wouldn't have been as far as I am now and have learned as much. But the thing that I tell you is get some get a sense of community around you. Gramlin is really family. I love it here. I'm always here, of course, because I love the people here. When you get good people around you, it helps the battles that you fight because life keeps going and life is always going to throw things at you, but it makes you amp up yourself to fight those things. And then also give yourself some time by yourself in your dorm to really filter everything that you're learning about yourself, this new environment that you're in, being a leader. Because being a leader is not only leading everybody on the outside, but leading from within. So get some time to yourself, but get that sense of community. So when they, when you are doing wrong, your friends can correct you and say, you're trying to be a leader, that's not, that's not the way to dress. That's not the way to go out. That's what you're doing. You shouldn't be using those words, being out in public like that. So sense of community for sure. And my freshman roommate is in here, so I just want to give her a whoop whoop because she did all my graphics throughout my whole time here. So thank you, Lanika. 
Thank you. Greetings. I'm Kessence Daniel. I am a freshman, and I am from Bernice, Louisiana. So my question is for Ms. Ashley. Um, so I know that as African-Americans, we can't slip up. We can't slip and fall. We can't make a mistake because we have to be the best at what we do. So how do you handle the pressure? How do you stay on top of your feet, you know, and not, you know, be anxious and feel like you can't handle it? Who told you that you can't fall? <laughs> I just feel like, you know, I have high expectations for myself. With me being an African-American young lady, you know, we have to be on top of everything. It's like immediate. We have to be the best at what we can do. You know, where white people, they're quicker to get opportunities than us. Where they may not be the best person for the job, they still end up getting it because of their privilege, you know, because of their color. So like I mentioned before, first thing is community because you need those people that you can be honest with because your honest feelings is how you can interpret to fight those battles. But the second thing is that I've learned and I stay true to this is I'm going to be my authentic self. When I say not only did I go home crying, some days I was in that office crying and that's okay because you're going to do it. I'm going to be my authentic self. I'm never gonna violate anything, but I'm gonna bring all of me here. Then we can filter out some things that maybe I shouldn't bring, but all of me is coming in this office every single day. So wherever you walk into, whether it's an office space, a dance room, a stage, you need to be your authentic self because that's the only way people can help you and see the benefits that you actually have because everything that is within you may not be in the next person beside you, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. Okay. <laughs> How would you answer, Ms. Jame? <laughs> so you're a dance instructor. We look up to you. We expect the best, which you're doing a very great job. Um, so how do you feel? How do you juggle all the pressure? <laughs> I think also community. I think she did a very good job answering that question. I would say community as well, and mine looks different. Um, mine is my family back home. I call them my boyfriend, my best friend, Willie, behind you. Um, <laughs> so I, I make sure that I, I vent to them so that I don't bring it into the studio. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, Kessie. Hello, my name is Cameron Few, and I'm from Chicago as well. Um, my question is, what's a point in time where you knew you were black? Like, I feel like, you know, you grow up and you know, like, oh, I'm black. But in a point of time where, oh, that's me that they're talking about, or this is a category that I'm in, or where this, like, a racist moment or whatever, just a point where you realize, oh, that's me. Like, um, I'm the black girl or I'm the black man. If they're like, does that make sense? Does the question make sense? Yeah. And I want all of you all to answer it. After I was uh, like entered the public school system, I went to a, I skipped a grade and then I went to this uh, mostly white elementary school. But I had been taking piano lessons from a piano teacher that taught at all of the black elementary schools in my neighborhood. And at the end of the year, they had this big concert. And I was at the white school, and they were singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And all the black people from my neighborhood were singing this song by Donny Hathaway. And like I felt so like, like I was with the white people, and all the black people were up there, and they could sing. And then the white people were singing Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer, bumping into each other when they swayed. 
And then a white dude in my class, as they were singing, he kind of whispered, but I could hear him and everybody in the class laugh. He said, look at all those lips. And that's when I knew, <laughs> like, you know, everybody laughed and I was, the, I was the only black person in that class and everybody laughed and that's when I knew, like, you know, I was not different. It was just like, they, but they were the dumb ones because they couldn't sing. They bumped into each other when they swayed. They were inadequate, but they felt superior just because of their whiteness. Um, when I first realized that I was black, or um, so I'm from New Orleans. I grew up in New Orleans, and um, during Hurricane Katrina, we evacuated to a small town in East Texas called Hallsville. You, nobody's ever heard of it. It's like, I don't know if y'all ever heard of Marshall, Texas, Wiley College, and then Longview is like right in between, but it's tiny, so you drive past it. Um, and I grew up in New Orleans around all black people, like my, my school, my elementary school, my neighborhood, my church, grocery store, everything was all black. So when I went to Hallsville, Texas, it was a culture shock. It was predominantly white. Um, and so I, I remember auditioning for the dance team and um, hearing people, their reaction and how I should not, why, who do you think you are? Like, why are you auditioning for the dance team? Like, that's not something that the black girls do. So I think that's kind of my first time. Um, my first time is actually from Georgia. It's kind of fueled my fire to be here at Grambling and why I love Grambling so much is um, back at home, all the black kids go to Fort Valley or Albany and all the white kids go to UGA or uh, our agriculture school, which is called ABAC, Abraham Baldwin. And I was going to ABAC because I worked at the camp that supported them. So I had a full ride to the university. Well, when I went to tour, one of the tour guides said to another person in the group, she's only coming here because we'll pay for her. And so at that point, I knew that I was black and I was only going to be awarded a scholarship because I was a black woman and I didn't want to be comfortable there, so. And I'll answer this briefly. I don't actually remember the first time that I had that memory. What I do have a visceral remembrance of is the first time that it actually was like, it's like, damn, like I feel real black right now. And that was in Boston, Massachusetts. I was on the Green Line train after a Yankees and Red Sox game. And I remember I was, I was, on, I was on this train and I ain't never felt that uncomfortable in my life. And I was to high school in Alabama, all right? So I was to high school in Alabama. Uh, I lived in Georgia. But it just, there was something different about that. I was like, yo, I feel uncomfortable and unsafe right now. Like, I feel like me as a person needs to remove myself from this situation. But I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was a feeling that I had. I think it's that innate feeling that we all have. It's like that, that paranoia that comes with blackness. Right, that's like I don't know if I don't know if this is really a problem, but it feels like it could be a problem. I should remove myself from it, um, and I so I I distinctly remember exactly where I was when that happened on that train in Boston after that game. Like it was just too much energy that was uncomfortable and unfamiliar to me, 
that was too. It was like, you know how you see like people win big football games and they burn down everything and everybody's like, yay, celebration. But if you did that, everybody's going to prison. It was that kind of feeling. And I, I remember that distinctly. It's like when they play Nuck if, when you buck, I mean, Nuck if you buck at the club <laughs> yeah. and it's like two o'clock in the morning and everybody drunk and like, yeah, it's probably time to leave now. Hi, my name is Kenaya Washington. I'm from Los Angeles, California. And my question is geared more towards, I hear amongst you all when you were discussing your different career paths from college into the quote unquote real world, um, just not feeling as though you're doing exactly what you thought you would be doing. And I think now in our journey as college students, we're kind of trying to find our purpose in a sense, and to see that you guys are not where you thought you would be, being that that was probably your purpose, how would you define purpose now? I, I will just say this, whatever, however you define it, right? Like the purpose is the thing that makes you happy and fulfilled. But what I will say is, I am not even the same human being that I was when I was 18, right? Like I was a it's like, I mean, not just the cell division and all the cells of my body, but I, I'm not the same person. It's like, like you're not the same person you were when you were 12. You're not going to be the same person when you're 32 or 52. So what is your purpose now could be possibly your purpose, but that doesn't mean it'll be your purpose in 10 years. It doesn't mean you're wrong now. Right. It just means that you won't be the same per person in the future that you are now. And sometimes the difference is what you think your purpose is. Mine has changed, I think. I think that it continues to change. So I'm still trying to figure that out right now, um, to be honest, completely honest. Um, like I said, it has changed like throughout my journey and I've only graduated six years ago. And so I feel like it has changed in every stage since I left, like in New York when I went to Oklahoma and now in Grambling State University is something different. So, Yeah, kind of wrapping up what everybody said so far, it's really a process. Your purpose is a process, it's an evolution. I always tie it back to my brand, which is a journey. It's the evolution of who I am and who I'm becoming. Because like mentioned, who I was at Gremlin and served as that purpose, did everything I needed to do in God's plan, in God's way. Now the person that I am to myself in my 20s, early 20s, is not going to be the same person I was even two years ago or even a year ago. So I'm defining that every day, but it's something that gives me motivation. And as long as I have breath to keep going and to keep serving and to keep giving, that's my purpose. And I'm going to add one, one caveat to this. You're from, you're from LA, right? Was this your first time coming out here when you came to college out here? All right. Completely new perspective on the world, right? You got out here, it was like, what the hell? Right. Or he was like, this is awesome, whatever, whichever, whichever one it was for you. Right. So you learned something completely new by coming out here. You saw people you never would have met in any of the circumstances. You saw places you never would have saw, seen in any of the circumstances. That's going to happen for the rest of your life. Who knows what, wherever you go from here, if it's a brand new, maybe you go back to L.A., but you're going to go back to L.A. different than you got here. You're going to see L.A. differently. Right. You might go to Oakland. You go to New York. You go to Atlanta. Like the first time I went to New York, I was like, my God. Like, I have never seen a place like this in my life. Like, I was so fascinated with New York, right? But it also changed the way that I saw myself and where I could see myself, right? So every experience I kept having 
impacted the way that I viewed who I was or where I could go. Right, the first time I got to Washington, D.C., I was like, I think I could live here. So I ended up moving. I went to grad school in D.C., and then I moved up there, and now I've you know, been here for like 20 years. But, you know, every experience you have can impact the way that you view your purpose because it's all adding to the building blocks of who you are. However old you are right now, there's so much you're going to learn. Tomorrow, you might learn something brand new that changes the way you view everything about the world. Hopefully, that's positively because some of us have had tragedies in our lives that have completely changed the way that we view things. I'm a much, ha I, had a, I had a significant tragedy happen in my life when I was 20, when I was a, between my junior and senior in college. I saw something I should never have to see that nobody should ever have to go through. But it fundamentally changed me as a person. I've been way more happy, way less negative since then because I kind of felt like I was on borrowed time ever since then. It wasn't until I had kids when I was like, maybe I'm supposed to be here. Like, I. That night, that changed my life. Maybe I wasn't supposed to, maybe I wasn't supposed to die that night, right? Like that kind of thing. And it gave me a new purpose. It gave me a, a, the way that I approached and deal with people after, dealt with people after that, completely different because I felt like I saw things differently. So based on what everybody was saying, which is all, we're all echoing the same things. It's just like every new experience you have can impact and change the way you view something. All of that is going to change your purpose. Who knows when you're going to find it? He's right. Maybe, you, maybe the purpose you think you have right now is exactly what you're supposed to do. But maybe tomorrow that's going to change. Maybe next week, maybe 10 years from now. Yeah, like... Maybe like, 50. Who knows? Like, here's a little example, right? Like, like she went to New York. She went to, to Oklahoma. And she, she thinks she failed. But what if God or the universe was literally trying to build the perfect dancer and give them all kinds of experience in every area and genre. And she thinks, oh, I failed in New York and I failed in Oklahoma. But in reality, her purpose was like, you know, it's very few people in dance students in the whole state of Louisiana that has a dance instructor with that much experience from around the country. What if that is part of her journey and like that failure, the thing she thought was a failure was building something more complete. But I, I was going to, I was going to say that too, like the disappointments and thinking that like I failed, I look back and I'm like, that I had to go through that to get to this point, then to that point, then to that point, because it's all a journey and it's all connected. So. Hi, I'm Madison Johnson. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I have a quick question. How did you learn how to not doubt yourself or second guess yourself and not to hold yourself back? And anyone can answer. I kind of wrap up for what she just said is everything makes sense eventually. It never makes sense in the moment. I can't think of one situation where I'm like, okay, this is gonna make sense. I'm gonna back pocket this and I'm gonna use it again. Never ever has that happened. In anything that I've gone through, I look back and say, dang, I needed that experience because now I'm prepared even more for this experience and I can pull from that. Kind of like how they say, get the word down in your soul. Like, you know, you need some experiences down in you so that way you're able to do those things. Another thing is, Going through with it doesn't mean that you didn't have doubt. Like, you can doubt yourself and still go through with it. Like, that is bravery, right? Like, it's not that you not don't have fear. It's that you do it 
despite the fear, right? So the doubt is a feeling. Doing it is an action. And so the two doesn't have anything to do with each other, right? So don't let the feeling stop the action. I have a question for Jemay. Uh Earlier you mentioned uh, there were things in New York you learned, like as far as uh, headshots and like other things in the professional world uh, that you wish you would have uh, known. Are you going to instill that for your students here at uh, Grammar State University? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely my plan. Um, everything that I felt like I didn't know leaving Grambling, like that's it's been my... Um, my goal to teach the Orkesis Dance Company and all of my students in the visual and performing arts to make sure that they um, are prepared and they don't have to go through or go through as um, less than what I had to go through as far as like trying to figure it out. That makes sense. Okay. Hi, you guys. My name is Alana Lewis. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And basically, I just want advice. Okay, so nobody in my, I'm the first college kid um so basically what I'm trying to ask is my mom doesn't think that if I go no she believes that if I go to a PWI or like high level HBCU that I'm like guaranteed to be a part of a workforce but I feel as if like I make the interview like I don't think that just because I say oh I go to Grambling or even if I don't go to a school I feel like who I am makes me eligible for a job, but she doesn't understand that. So like, what is advice that I should give to my mom to help her understand that just because I go to Grambling, which isn't like the highest HBCU, it's not Spelman, but it's Graham. So it's a school, it's a college, so. Who told you Grammys and prestigious, baby? This is the Ivy League of all Ivy League institutions, please. Uh, what is your major, first of all, be the question? Kinesiology science. I want to be a physical therapist. Okay. Um, first to start off with is in anything that you do, you have to be confident in what you're doing. And the hard part about it, about it is our family members are our own enemies sometimes, and they don't try to be. They do not try to be, but they are. And if you can't hold yourself accountable for your confidence, don't expect anybody else to do it. So that starts with having the conversation. Again, Gremlin is the prestigious of all HBCU, Ivy Leagues, or anything. You can get any job you want to because of who you are. And that's like everybody mentioned, it's just really being confident in that. And then, of course, your network. Gremlin has several opportunities in career services to get a job. Administration always knows somebody. There's always alumni willing to help you. So that's never going to stop you. And we're always going to prepare you for those interviews to walk in there like you got a degree from Harvard University. And, and one of the things is I feel like that's a myth that people believe. Like, there probably are, like, some people who went to Harvard who could help you, who help other people from Harvard get jobs? Because they were rich before they went to Harvard anyway, right? Like, they just got those connections. But, like, in the real world, like, once you graduate and you got a degree and then you get some, like, you're not going to be the president of the whatever job you work at um, the first year, but, like, 
people kind of don't care where you went to school. Like, it's really, like, it's really disappointing. Like, when, like, it's really disappointing that, like, the 4.0 student is the same as the 2.5 student once you get out of college. Like, like all, a lot of the right. stuff that we think is like, you got a degree? Yeah, can I verify it? Yeah. Um, all right, then, um, you know, that's it, basically, right? Let me... So here, and it's the same books. Yeah. Like it's the same bodies in the same books that they're all studying from. Here, here's something you can tell your mother, which just say it respectfully, because if your mama like my mama, you gotta be careful how you say these things. But we have a famous saying in the black community: "I can show you better than I can tell you." Right. So just go out there and do exactly what you think you can do. This, you, can't, you can't win an argument with somebody who's already decided the outcome on the other end, right? But you know how you can change that argument? If you go, you do what you're supposed to do while you're here. You go to class, you graduate, you go get a job. Then what? She can't say nothing if you literally disprove what she thought in the first place. And I do want to echo that other thing. Listen, 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 listen. I went to Morehouse. Right, so I obviously have a very lofty opinion of self. That's how we all. That's how we all get taught. But I imagine you all get taught the exact same thing here, right? Like you said, you at Grambling. You ain't. This is you. You at where you're supposed to be. So you better wear that, as if it is the greatest institution that ever existed, because they got you here, and they got other people like you here, right? Like you can't ever walk out somewhere. Being like, well, I'm here, but I know it ain't this. Don't do that. Because I went to Morehouse. You cannot tell me. You know, we have shirts at Morehouse that say Harvard, the Morehouse of the North. Like, you got to think that highly of where you are, or else you're not going to be able to carry that out to anybody else you're talking to, much less family, right? If you, if, you, if, if you don't believe it, why would your mom believe that? You know what I'm saying? So just go and show and prove, though. Just get, what year are you? 2026. I'm a okay. freshman. All right, so good. You got you, she got some years to stew in this, but you got to deal with that. Your mama, you just got to deal with it. But then when you graduate and you get that job, you could be like, "Look, here's exactly why I came here, and here's exactly what it did for me. You'll be all right." And Thank his, you all. His oh. point back to getting back to the first question. His point is relevant because Harvard's reputation is just some s that white people made up right like like for real like the books are the same it's not like they got some secret knowledge at harvard right so all you got to do is just decide wherever you are is better than every other place that there is in the world and she has on our sweater with a gremlin i know the g represents gremlin but honestly, for me every day, it represents I'm a gangster, okay? I was meant to be here, and I can be in every space, and this code switch can go on and off. So you need to walk with that pride and know you ain't got to say you're a gangster, but, you know, I got a little land in me, okay? So. I'm a gangster. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all. Hey, everybody. I'm Kirsten, and I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana. I have a question for Jamae. Hey, girl. <laughs> So my question is basically, it's a two-part question. The first part of the question is, what advice would you give us as oinks or as any young aspiring um, professional dancer? And the next part of the question is, what advice do you have for somebody who's trying to go the freelance direction with all of that? Because since you're flourishing in that area, I would really like to know, because I wanna would like to do something like this. So what's like any green flags or stuff not to do or... Just advice in general. Okay, Kirsten, you're going to have to give me that first question again. Okay. <laughs> what was it? 
Okay, the first question was, what advice do you have for the oinks or any young aspiring professional dancers? Okay, um, so our oinks, for y'all who don't know, it's the new members of really your Kisses Dance know. Company. <laughs> we just call them oinks. Um, my advice to my new dancers, but, but just a dancer in general that's like pursuing dance, um, keep going. Don't give up. I know that's so cliche to say, but keep going because the minute you give up, like you, you, you're gonna regret it, and then you're gonna start where you stop. You're not gonna start where you stopped off. You're gonna be, you're gonna be. Um, what am I trying to say? Behind. Behind. Yeah. So in the company or just in general, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Um, and then what was the second one? The second one was what do you feel like? Do you have any? red or green flags, what to do or what not to do when it comes to being a freelance artist? Freelance artist. Or dancer. Hmm. One thing that I learned as the way that I got into like this freelance world is um, collaborating with my, my friends. Like I have a lot of friends who are dancers, who are um, videographers and things like that. And so I collaborate with them to create art. And another thing that I would tell you, Kirsten, is um, don't be afraid to make it happen for yourself. Um, a lot of times as dancers, like we, we value the person standing in front of the room, their opinion way too much. And sometimes you have to, um, you have to try to make it happen for yourself. And so what does that mean for you? Um, if you wanted, so for me, I wanted to be, I wanted to perform. And so I found people around me that wanted to do the same thing and we created art. Um, I wanted to be a dance um, model. And so I would make my own costumes and I would hire a photographer and I would do it that way. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Thank All right. you. You're welcome. No, a couple of things before we close out. One. I want to say thank you to Grambling State University for allowing us to be here, for having us here, for opening up your hearts and minds and your venue for us to come down here and share a little bit. This is awesome. I was, I was very sincere when I said I have a lot of love for HBCUs. So if I could only ever go speak at HBCUs, like true story, and I don't, I'm not saying this so that people know, when I used to go do like a public speaking, I wouldn't even charge the HBCUs. I'm like, yo, I'll do that for free because that's what matters to me now. The other schools, they're going to come out of pocket. But my black folks, if, you know, if I could, I would do it for free because I genuinely believe that I would not be here without the spaces that were given to me as a student at Morehouse, at Spelman, because I spent a lot of time at Spelman. Um, I even double majored, actually, so I could take all my classes at Spelman. Um, I was very enterprising at a very young age. Um, but I want to thank, say thank you to everybody for being here. Uh, it really means a lot that you all came out. Hopefully you were able to take something away from all these wonderful panelists who had a lot of gems to drop, who had things to, to share, who were very open and honest about their journeys. And I think that's important because one of the most important things you're ever going to get from people who've been where you are in life is, is their experiences, understanding those experiences that hopefully make things a little bit easier for you. That's what I think is the job of everybody who's come before us, is to make things a little bit easier for those behind us. Um, check out Dear Culture. It's one of the podcasts on the Grio Black Podcast Network, as is the Grio Daily. We have several podcasts on the Grio Black Podcast Network that you should check out, subscribe. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts. 
Uh, we have some amazing shows coming out by people like Toure has a couple shows coming out. Uh, Maisha Kai. We just we have a lot of really good content at the Grio that you should check out. So thegrio.com, the Grio Black Podcast Network. Check us out on the Grio app. Um, and in closing, I just want to say thank you to everybody for being here. Michael Harriet, Jamae Griffith, Ashley Dabney. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed the opportunity to have that with you all. Uh, jokes, seriousness, all that good stuff. It makes for good conversations, and I think that's why we do this thing that we're doing. So, thank you all for being here. It's been a pleasure. It's been a blast. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime. Black is beautiful. Have a black one, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.